Welcome. My name is Colleen Patterson, and I'm excited to welcome back my colleague, Peter Gualteri, who leads the growth, mergers, and acquisitions team here at Savoy. Today, we will be discussing the third part of Savoy's three-part series on mergers, acquisitions, and strategic partnerships. A consistent point throughout our discussion has really focused on finding the right party to deal with whether you're selling, buying, or setting up a strategic relationship. As a matter of fact, I know our team has already helped several brokers during the past few months find matches and negotiating an arrangement as a result of our first two sessions. By the feedback we've received, many of our listeners have learned as much as I did during our previous two discussions. First, we covered why and how mergers, acquisitions, and strategic partnerships can be a significant source in growing your business. Then we went more in depth in what typically is involved in negotiating these type of arrangements. And then today, the uh, item that we're going to be focusing on is really following the natural progression as to what should be expected. And really more importantly, how you can control some of the post-deal integration with this new partner. So let's really get into our discussion today. Uh, Peter, can you give our listeners what they could expect after they commit to these type of arrangements? Well, hello, Colleen, and uh, thank you for hosting this segment again. You know, I always look forward to your engaging questions, and hopefully we can sort of close the loop on this uh, on this three-part series uh, as we talk about the, the natural progression of going to the post-deal integration. Your first question as far as what is expected if the two parties commit to a, de- to a deal, it really varies tremendously depending on the complexity of the terms. I mean, there there could be things as what what is the marketing plan, the branding, is the previous is is the is both partners working? There are just many different terms of every deal. I will say, in the hundred plus deals we have been involved in, we have seen the expectations vary dramatically based upon the type of, of deal. However, the key point is always communicating effectively. It really is not a matter of, you know, a post deal, like what should happen. It's that there are just a tremendous amount of steps. There's a series of steps. And my recommendation always is to take one step at a time, make sure it's very clear between both parties. What is the expectation on that step? When will it be completed? What is the effect? And how are things communicated with the focus always being on the end clients? Now, understanding which communication and the time frame for those communications are really the, uh, the key points. You really don't want to have any type of surprises for the clients. Thank you. So listening to what you were saying, it sounds like there's a lot of pieces uh, even in this post-arrangement discussion. So I would say that it also sounds like the type and the complexity of these kind of arrangements is really what makes every transaction unique. Are there some commonalities to these transactions? Yes, uh, of course. Every uh, every transaction, there, there are certain procedural com- commonalities, you know, and some newer formats to closing a deal in this new COVID world. Now, as I previously stated in the negotiating session, the final step of a negotiation is having the attorneys paper the components of the deal, you know, putting down all the details in some type of legal jargon. In the past, these, these closings of these deals were very similar to a real estate settlement 
where the party sat around a table. We sat around a table and we sort of signed all the papers and shook hands. Now with this uh, post-COVID and enhanced technology, almost all the deals nowadays are simply the process of pushing buttons, even pushing buttons at different times. You know, they may all be effective a certain day, but I've been exposed in deals in which there's been as much as a week difference between one party pushing a button and the other party pushing a button. Of course, this is an easier process. However, for someone a little old school like me, it takes away from the personalization of, you know, a handshake, a look in the eye after a deal's completed. Some things do get lost. Another commonality. That's in, in most, you know, closings or sometimes ter- called uh, closing of a transaction or a settlement are the time of month. The time of month that a deal is done, most of the deals that we have been involved in, they always wanted to do it the first of the month. And they really do that primarily for measurement purposes because most deals have some type of what we would call a tail meaning that there's some incentive or or some payment that's going back to the original party, the seller or whomever is bringing something to the table that's based on a future incentive. So whenever they want to measure, they always prefer to do the first of a month, sometimes even the first of a quarter, sometimes even the first of a year, because it just becomes easier to measure. However, I've seen deals that have been secondarily on the 15th of each month, And I've actually seen deals that have been on any day of the month because, again, in these transactions, anything is possible as long as both parties agree. So you mentioned this post-COVID world, and I think that's a great point. COVID has definitely forced an efficiency through the increased need and utilization of technology, which is what you were just talking about. It's had a tremendous impact on all aspects of our lives, so it's not surprising that it's changed the way these type of transactions are being memorialized and certainly finalized. Is there one commonality that you think applies to almost all of these types of transactions? Good question. One commonality that I will say almost a hundred for a hundred that when we had anyone who was going through a first time deal, the issue that always comes up, especially on any type of uh, the benefit side of, of the business is cash deals. You know, individuals, when they hear the word cash deal, you know, their, their first thought is, is it like a real estate transaction? You're getting all cash up front and there's no financing. It's, you know, and it, it really doesn't work like that. So let me try and, and define this type of transaction. It's not like a real estate transaction, nothing to do with the type of payment. What a cash deal simply means, when will the acquiring party or the, part, the main party start receiving monies from the other party? from carriers or whatever their business may be. And a cash deal just means they pick a date, whatever the effective date or, you know, closing date or settlement date. And at that date, all monies that ever come in under the old company's name are suddenly the new company's money. Now, obviously, the old company may receive the money and they just have to send it to the new company. But a cash deal simply means that It doesn't matter where the money group or effective date or individual effective date that the money was from. It could be from two, three months ago because we all know in our business there is a lag. But it just means that you pick a date and from that date forward, the money goes over and that is considered a cash deal. This difficulty, this is a lot of the sellers are always like, well, why would the new person be entitled to a past amount of money? The term that I always say, it all comes out in the wash. Because in any 12-month period, it sort of adjusts itself. 
Now, if someone knows that, hey, there's a significant lag of something that hasn't been paid, they sometimes highlight that. And I have seen deals in which they would pull that amount out and say, when that comes in, that goes back to the previous owner. However, when I've seen that, it's been a double-edged sword because there are retractions and other things that may happen. So I always caution anyone in a deal that when you start trying to isolate and get lasered things out, it can it can go both ways. You know, so either way, it, uh, it becomes a problem if you start lasering and making the deal much more complicated. However, if the, all the parties agree on the proper measurement periods, due diligence of their numbers, and legally papering a mutual agreeable deal, then the final steps are executing the documents and there's typically a wire transfer of funds. Now, I just want to caution because every time we've been involved in a wire, you have to be very careful regarding fraud. Almost all the banks will, will set up a, a phone call to make sure that the, the, the monies were received in the right account almost immediately. So if you have not been involved in any type of wire fund transfer, it is a serious banking issue now with wired funds. So I just wanted to highlight the fact of make sure that if they don't have a phone call, please have a phone call to verify the transaction. And then once the wiring of funds, that really marks the completion of the deal. Thank you. So your explanation as far as uh, how the closing of a deal occurs has been really helpful. Uh, but that brings up another question as you're talking about cash and how funds are uh, moving. Can you elaborate on how the accounts will be viewed at the carrier level and what information uh, should be provided in order for the process to change ownership in their systems? That's a good question. In my experience, we always contact all of the relevant carriers to find out their most current requirements to move business from seller to buyer. They do not stay static. For someone, if there is someone who's been experienced, well, that experience is only good at that particular point in time because carriers are notorious for changing the policy of what is, what they do today as to what they'll do 12 or 18 months a month from now. So we always want to verify that and any of the support we have done. You'd be surprised at the varying requirements between carriers, the geographical differences. You can have the same carrier, one geography they handle one way and another they handle it another way. The product differences, if you have a certain product, you know, you have a certain Medicare product versus another, what the requirements are, it varies dramatically. Typically, at the minimum, carriers will require what they call a letter of assignment to the buyer with a copy of the first and last page of the agreement. You know, you don't always have to disclose the details of any type of arrangement, but they usually will, will want the first and last page. And if there were anything on that page that you felt were, were personal, you can cross it out with a black marker, however, and they, they will accept that because they really don't want that. They just want to see a signature that you're authorizing the change of ownership. There may be cases where a product or a carrier will not allow the named agent to change. It's common in the Medicare space. In these situations, you can either omit the block from the deal or simply buy the revenue stream, which really would mean you require the seller to reimburse the amounts on a periodic basis, like every month. If it's a small amount, you may do it every six months or every year. But there's a way in which you can still have that as part of the deal even if the carrier won't allow it. That's something that you would have to go through when you find out each carrier. Once a deal is completed, the carriers all have different time requirements to process a change. Usually it goes from anywhere to one to three months. 
For this reason, many buyers disperse the initial payment in stages after all the businesses properly moved under the buyer's name. So if there were some carriers who would not allow it to be moved over, they may want to take it out of the deal. So that's why the buyer doesn't want to pay the entire amount. So they may stage, you know, 30%, 30%, 33%, or they may do half and half, or they may do all up front. I've seen all the all different versions. Finally, it's always in your best interest if you're the seller to try and get in the buyer's name or the bigger entity's name sooner than later. And the primary reason for that is, you know, you, you, they get treated differently when you have different volumes. There may be bonus eligible. And most importantly, just being able to have different part people in the organization interact with the carriers. Because if it's not in the right name, only certain people can interact and it becomes a problem. The carriers always work ownership from the IDA carrier. It's signified by the tax identification number. So when someone says, oh, company A is buying company B, well, from the carrier's perspective, it is, well, what is company A's tax ID? And when company B's tax ID changes to, the, to company A, that's when everything will be changed. You know, some of the large aggregating acquirers have gone as much as a year before changing the tax ID. They sort of let the acquirer operate under their own, you know, tax ID, which can sometimes be confusing. And some of the firms allow legacy brand names to last for year to year and longer. Often leads to confusion on the carrier or general agency side. No one knows, like, is this company owned by somebody else or, or not? So it does get confusing. However, if you, again, as you're trying to consolidate volumes for incentive and bonus opportunities in the seller and the buyer's best interest to have it all under at least one tax ID. Thank you. So as I'm listening, uh, you're talking about geography and uh, the carriers operate in multiple geographies, but that the process could change by the geography, certainly uh, the timing of everything. So it sounds somewhat complex and in many cases can be confusing. Are there services that the Savoy team provides that can assist with this process? The short answer is yes, absolutely. However, the level of assistance depends on the scope of the deal the willingness for the buyer to utilize our expertise, and the revenue growth opportunities for Savoy. Aside from guiding our partners on integrations, you know, the different requirements that may be for the carrier or the state, there's other governing bodies. Our team, you know, we help with a lot of the administrative reconciliation services, you know, such as carrier letters, mailing out client letters. Again, the client communication is really uh, important and more times than not, there's a legal requirement that you have to let the clients know of the change of ownership. I mean, I've seen some smaller deals where it was not done and it, and it backfires on the, uh, the, the smaller entities who don't let them know that. You know, we also assist with licensing and carrier appointments, very, very key point, you know, and we reconciled some of the accounting and track the switching of ownership with each carrier just, you know, because we have access to information. We have just been through that. Just, you know, everything's sort of classified in integration, like, oh, are we 30 percent? Are we 50 percent? Are we 80 percent? And we monitor that along the way. And we have a team of professionals who've, you know, been involved in enough deals that we, we still get unknown landmines, but we've been through our share of landmines. Thank you. So I'm glad to hear that Savoy's got resources that can help. Um, and it sounds like if I'm hearing you correctly, Peter, that uh, it's really, um, however, Savoy can help, Savoy will help. Would you agree with that? 
Yes, absolutely. I think that we will always want to try and, you know, our primary, our primary responsibility is we just help brokers grow their business and run it more efficiently. And in any type of, of acquisition or merger or strategic relationship, there's just a lot of moving pieces that can hurt the efficiency running as well as anything you do to maximize revenue. So we will we'll work along brokers to, to help make sure that A, they continue to grow revenue and don't lose clients, and B, we may help make the client experience less impactful if there's and less negative impact if there is a, with any change. That is excellent practical advice, and it certainly sounds like it'll ensure a successful transition of ownership of a book of business, uh, particularly at the carrier level. But I'm curious, though, have you ever seen transfers not go so well? More from watching afar that some integrations did not go well. As I mentioned in the previous podcast, you know, a lot becomes down with the due diligence. If you have a, a poor due diligence, you know, a lot of things can go wrong. Right from the beginning, a due diligence, which they measure revenue. So I said, a lot of the deals are paid after they know what revenue is coming in. And I have seen that, you know, what the seller thought they had as revenue, they end up getting paid less because it was not a clear due diligence. Most of the acquiring bigger companies, they know how to put enough language in there to protect themselves. So more times than not, it's the seller, a smaller seller, is not really a, a too enough and if we weren't helping them and they tried to do something on their own that is definitely a landmine the, the other area that I see the biggest problem with is delays everything goes a lot takes a lot longer to get things done when you don't really have the insulation of services and understanding what's involved in these integrations so but so it becomes labor intensive in trying to track the monies it becomes a service problem for any of the clients if things aren't in the right name go Going back and forth. So delays are the the second big one. The third area that that really gets concerning is it's complicated in getting the correct carrier appointments, the correct insurance uh, department uh, licensing, because it may be like the new firm may or may not have the same geography that the firm they bought. And I have seen firsthand in which if if a license was not updated or active during a period of time, there's just lost revenue that can never be retrieved because obviously the carrier doesn't pay someone who's not licensed at a period of time that the, the funds were, were earned and the carrier is not allowed to do it because it's just against the law. So I have seen in transaction periods of time in which the carrier benefited because they could not pay a broker who is not licensed in that particular state at that particular time. So my final advice always is to make sure the clients have their first experience with a new entity to be favorable. And that just comes with good communication and insulating yourself with partners who are familiar with the process. Peter, thank you so much for your insight and sharing your expertise in M&A and the post-deal implementations and integrations. Uh, this concludes our 
three-part series. And as a reminder, these broadcasts, along with other M&A information, can be found in the link below of uh, today's uh, podcast. At the end of today's broadcast, if you would like to have a free preliminary confidential assessment of your situation, please click the link below that is found in the video description. From all of us at Savoy, stay healthy and safe. Thank you for joining us today.